The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 6. Hope your hearts are encouraged. And uh, it's been four weeks now since we were in Romans. Last time we were in Romans was December 18th. And uh, it's been a while ago, and uh, that Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 4, and if you happen to miss that sermon, I'd encourage you to listen to it. It was pretty important foundation for, um, uh, for, for this uh, series, and just um, really crucial passage of Scripture. Uh, but Romans chapter 6, and this morning we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. It says there, for if we have become united with him, speaking of Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus." I want to begin today by asking you, how would you evaluate your spiritual life? How do you see yourself as a Christian? Do you see yourself as a spiritual success? Do you see yourself as a spiritual wreck? Or or do you see yourself somewhere in between? And how do you see your sin struggles? We, We all have struggles. We all have areas where we fall short. And have you resigned yourself to, uh, to victimhood, that, that you are a victim of your broken past or overwhelming trials or maybe a brain disorder or something like that, and so you are who you are, you always will be who you are, and you believe there's no hope for change? Or, by the grace of God, do you believe that God is at work to change you and you are aggressively pursuing the prize and then just to extend that out how do you perceive the spiritual life of those who are closest to you your children your spouse your parents maybe people here in the church that you are trying to impact are you constantly anxious about their spiritual progress do you despair over their immaturities Maybe you're just numb to the problems that those in your life have because you don't think they're ever going to change. And so why get your hopes up if nothing's ever going to be different? And here's a tough one with all those questions and your answers to all those questions. How purposefully are your answers to those questions anchored in the truth of God's Word? That you look at yourself and you look at the people around you and you, you evaluate them, and, and you evaluate yourself, and you strategize for yourself, and you strategize in your impact on other people's lives based on what the Scriptures say. 
Or would you have to say that fear or popular culture shapes your answers to those questions more than the Bible does? Now, now maybe you'd say, well, all of that, I mean, yeah, I don't think like I should. I don't perceive people like I should, but none of it really matters. I mean, what matters is what I do. You assume that, that how you think and how you feel really has no impact on what happens. So there's really not much point in changing the way that you think. Well, today's text declares that your answers to all those questions are very significant. That how you see yourself dramatically shapes how you approach the Christian life. And how you see other people dramatically shapes whether you are an influence in their lives for godliness or an influence towards discouragement. And so the message of Romans 6, verses 5 through 11, is crucial, is crucial to the Christian life. So so with that in mind, the first major truth that this passage teaches regarding our spiritual life and how we must see ourselves is that Christians are dead to sin. Christians are dead to sin. Now, now to appreciate this, we we have to remember the context that we developed four weeks ago in Romans uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And so, verse 1 asks two questions that drive this entire chapter. So again, verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, now remember that, that that question, the second question in particular, is a question that Paul anticipates as coming from his imaginary but very realistic Jewish opponent. So Paul said in in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So so, so Paul just said that, that we are saved by grace alone. That's what he's talked about for the first five chapters. We're saved by grace alone, and that no matter how much we might sin, the grace of God is always stronger. And so this Jewish opponent, he comes along. He doesn't believe in salvation by grace alone. And he says that is ridiculous. If the grace of God really abounds where sin increases, that then we might as well just sin more because none of it matters at all. What an absurd theology to say that we're saved by grace alone. And Paul's going to say that that conclusion that the grace of God means that we should sin more, that that is a false conclusion. But but I do think it's worth emphasizing that a lot of people who profess to believe the the gospel do draw that exact conclusion. Whether whether they would voice it or not, they believe that they've twisted the grace of God into a, a reason to be lazy in their battle against sin. When I'm going to heaven, I know I'm going to heaven, so, so why do I really need to do battle with sin? You know, there, there's a lot of professing Christians around us who would even boast, in a sense, in, in, in the fact that they know the grace of God and they are so confident in the grace of God that, that they don't really need to be serious about holiness. So, so what this guy says, as absurd as it is, is in fact how a lot of professing Christians think. And Paul responds in verse 2. He says, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So, in other words, anyone who claims that grace frees us to be ungodly, 
has fundamentally distorted the nature and the intent of the gospel. Because when God saves someone, he, he doesn't just forgive them of their sins. No, he destroys sin's enslaving power. He makes us dead to sin. And he does so to transform our lives. And then verses 3 and 4 go on to say that he does all of this through union with Christ. So when you got saved, you didn't just receive a gift. You entered a relationship with a person. The second person of the Trinity. And as a result, God's intent in the gospel is not simply to fill heaven with as many people as possible. No, God's intent in the gospel is to create worshipers of God who are transformed into His image. That is what God is doing in us in Christ. So so verse 4 concludes that He does all of this. That we would walk in newness of life. But verses 5-11 through follow by saying that it's not enough that we just know these things to be true. Or, Or that these things are true, excuse me. It's not enough that these things are true. We must know that they are true. We must believe them down deep in our souls and they must transform how we approach the entire Christian life. So, so verses 5-7 through seven drive home the fact that Christians are united to Christ's death. Now, now to appreciate that what that means, we, we have to remember what exactly it is that Jesus did on the cross. And Galatians 4, 4 and 5 give us a good summary. They say, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So so that verse tells us that that Jesus became one of us. And, And he didn't just become a man, he submitted to the Old Testament law, and on the cross, Jesus took our sin and all of its consequences on himself. And Jesus so identified with us that verse 9 of our text says that death became the master of Jesus. That's an incredible statement to consider. But of course, death's mastery over Jesus didn't last. It says there that death is no longer master over Him. So Christ broke death's mastery. He broke its enslaving power in the cross. And verse 5, of our text declares that every Christian, the moment we are born again, we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. It's interesting that the Greek term that's translated there, united, is the Greek term homoioma. And it's, and it's a term that describes a, a tight union, describes two objects that are so completely bound together that you cannot tell them apart. So, so an example of how this term would be used would be uh, that the legs of a chair are so perfectly formed to the body of the chair that you can't actually tell that there are two pieces of wood. And, and so the idea here is that when I get saved, I am so deeply connected to Jesus that I am one with Him. Again, as we talked about four weeks ago, we are in Christ. And verse 6 adds that the result of this union with Jesus is that our old self was crucified with Him. 
Now, now the old self here is literally the old man, all right? And, and, and we have to understand that phrase considering the contrast that, that came up in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, between the first Adam, uh, Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus, which, which actually Joel just sung about. And, um, and remember, for, from that passage, it's been a few weeks ago now, but what we talked about in Romans chapter 5 is that all of us are born into the world in Adam. And so we've inherited his sin nature. We've inherited his corruption, and, and ultimately we have inherited his, 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 his condemnation. So chapter 5, verse 21 says that sin reigns in death. So, so we're born into this world enslaved to sin and condemned as a result. I mean, we are the old man. But, but incredibly, chapter 6, verse 6 says that when I was united to Christ, when, when you got saved, your old self, the old man, was crucified with Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the moment you got saved, the old man died. He died. Now, now he doesn't say there that he is dying. He is dead. So I'm not the same person I used to be. That old man is gone. Now, now, now that doesn't mean that I'm no longer a sinner, right? And I'm a sinner. My wife knows that. My kids know that. Everyone who knows me well knows that. And everyone who knows you well knows that you are still a sinner as well. And we're all going to struggle with sin until the day that we die. But, but the point that Paul is making here in Romans 6, verse 6, is that your relationship to sin has fundamentally and forever changed if you are in Christ. You are, as, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, a new creature in Christ. I love how Colossians 3 verse 10 puts it. It says, you have put on the new self or the new man. So the old man was crucified. You have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, 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 so notice the contrast there, right? The, the tension there. I am a new man, right? I, I'm a new creature in Christ. But that new man is being renewed. I, I have to practically, daily take on that, that nature in, in how I live and how I function. And, and, so, and so what Paul tells us here. In Romans 6, verses 5 and 6, it is that I have been united to Christ's death to sin. His victory is mine. And I belong to Him, and I have been fundamentally changed. But, but notice that Paul goes on to say that, that God did this for us in Christ for a very specific purpose. And that is that I must live out my union. You know, this is not a gift that God gives you know, just so that we can like lock it in a box and be glad that we have it and do nothing with it. No, I must live out my union. So, so notice the two purpose statements at the end of verse 6 because these two purpose statements really are, I mean, they are crucial. They are central to Paul's message in verses 1 through 14. Verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So, so, so what Paul says there, 
Now, now I do want to just note real quickly here that when he mentions there the body of sin, he, he doesn't mean that we get rid of our bodies when we get saved, right? That would be really strange, right? Now, obviously, it's not what happens. And he's not saying that your body is the, the reason for sin. No, no, he's describing here my whole person, including my body and soul before conversion. John Murray says that the entire old man, the unconverted man, is conditioned and he is controlled by sin. So that was my life before I got saved. But, Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Why? So that the body of sin might be done away with. So why does God save sinners? And of course, there's multiple purposes. But one of the purposes behind why God saves sinners is to destroy sin's reign. That the body of sin might be done away. And then second, he says that God does this so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He does it to change us. So so if you are in Christ, the old man has been crucified. Now, Now again, there's tension there, right? Because we can voluntarily make ourselves slaves to sin again. Do Christians ever get enslaved to sin? Absolutely. But, but it is not because we can't change. We are fundamentally different. In fact, verse 7 says that he who has died, speaking of Christians who are in Christ, every Christian has died. He who has died is freed from sin. So, so spiritual growth is not automatic, right? And that's an important point to emphasize. It is not automatic. I must actively apply my death to sin. You don't just wake up in the morning and poof, sin's gone and you're a totally different person. We must apply our death to sin. And according to verse 6, how do I begin to apply it? I begin to apply it by knowing this. By believing this. Verse 11 commands us to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And then verse 12 is going to command us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So so I have to apply what I have received. And and we'll talk a lot more about that, all right? Later on today, and especially next week when we get to verses 12 through 14. But for now, notice again God's intent in our salvation. Again, as I emphasize, I've emphasized over and over, God doesn't save people merely so that we can go to heaven. You know, the gospel is not merely about making people feel better about themselves and giving them community and you know, helping them you know, have purpose and meaning and giving God a try. No. God saves people. He says here very specifically, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that life under grace means that that you are free to be spiritually lazy, you don't really need to fight sin. Or or that life under grace means that that there there is no law and you can do basically whatever you want. You can indulge your flesh, live a worldly life, and glory in it all along the way. You can say, no, you are wrong. And here's a verse that says why you're wrong. The gospel is intended to fundamentally change the way we live. God saves us 
to create holy worshipers of the Lord. And I think that's a really important fact for us to emphasize when we share the gospel with people. Yeah, because if we omit that the life-transforming implications of the gospel, then we really are misrepresenting what the gospel does. And you can look around American Christianity, you can see a lot of people who have missed that point. You know, there are people all over Apple Valley. You say, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. You know, and, and I, you know, I prayed a prayer, I felt God at some point, I identify myself as a Christian. But, but there is no intent, no drive in their heart to actually submit to what the Bible says and to obey its truth. And so they think that the gospel is a gift to heaven with really no life-altering demands on their life today. And, and, and we need to be careful that we communicate what it is to be born again. Now, now, that does not mean that for someone to get saved, they have to comprehend every little implication that the gospel has for life, right? But, but they do need to understand that becoming a Christian is not just you know, taking a gift card from God. As we emphasized four weeks ago, it is entering into a relationship with a person. And that relationship fundamentally transforms everything about me. And of course, it's important to emphasize as well that that is a good change. Now, now Satan, of course, he, he wants to convince us all that, that sin is the way to go. And, and he, he wants us to, to see how appealing sin is. But of course, he hides from us the fact that sin really is an evil slave master. That, that it never satisfies and it always leaves people empty and, and, and wanting more. You know, he likes to show us all the fun, right? But he doesn't, he likes to hide the fact that, that yes, while sin can give you fun in the moment, it ultimately leaves us angry, depressed, lonely, and unsatisfied. You know, by far the happiest people I know are people who have lived for Christ for years and who are finding their rest and joy in obeying God and walking in Him. So, so sin's mastery will never compare to a mature Christianity of walking with Christ, beholding His glory, and enjoying His grace and kindness. So, so Christian, you know, don't lament the fact that God expects you to serve Him. You'll know, be grateful for your relationship to Him. Give thanks that you are dead to sin. Because sin is a horrible master. Its chains are broken and you are free. But then you have to believe that truth. You have to remind yourself often that it's true and you have to apply it day by day. So, so Christians are dead to sin. And then the second great truth that our passage teaches is that Christians are alive to God. We are alive to God. So, so let's read on. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So, so just as we are only dead to sin because Christ died to sin, 
These verses say that we are only alive to God because Jesus rose from the dead. So, so we can't appreciate what it means that we are alive to God without first contemplating the victory of Christ over death. And, and, and once again, I mean, to, to really appreciate our union with Christ that, that Paul's talking about in verses 1 through 11, we, we have to appreciate how far Jesus went in identifying with sinners like us. I mean, he became fully human. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So when Jesus went to the cross, he took on himself our guilt and he took on himself our punishment again to the extent that verse 9 says that death became Jesus' master. And the, word, the, the verb there that's translated master is the Greek verb kurio, and it comes from the same family as the word for Lord, kurios. So the idea is that in the cross, death became the Lord of Jesus. That's incredible to ponder. There really has never been a darker moment in human history. But of course, this passage celebrates the fact that it was only for a moment because God raised Jesus from the dead. And verses 9 and 10 especially emphasize the finality of Jesus' victory. Right? It says Jesus, in verse 9, it says He is never to die again. And then it says because death is no longer master over Him. And then verse 10 says, The death He died, He died to sin once for all. So so this was not a slow victory. This was not a partial victory. This was an absolute victory. Maybe a way to help us appreciate that is to contrast it with America's war on terror. So think about the fact that way back in 2001, we declared war on terror after uh, the World Trade Centers were destroyed. And we won a lot of victories, right? We, We killed Osama bin Laden and killed Saddam Hussein, we broke up a lot of terror cells, and, and we also uncovered a lot of uh, horrible plots. But for every victory, there were ten new challenges. And, uh, and ultimately, we got tired of the war, we lost interest, and we quit. Because we never could quite win it. And, and in contrast, when Jesus defeated sin and death, the battle was over. He shattered sin's chains. I love how the old song, Christ Arose, essentially mocks a death's grip on Jesus. It says, vainly they watch His bed. Vainly they seal the dead. Death cannot keep His prey. He tore the bars away. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 mocks death when it says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So, so when Jesus rose from the dead, his victory was full and final. And as a result, verse 10 says that the life that he lives, speaking of Jesus, he lives to God. So, so the point there is, is that sin and death have no lasting impact on Jesus. No, he is in heaven today, living in perfect holiness in all the joy and peace of the Father. So Jesus won a final victory. But, but you might wonder, well, well, that's great, and I know that. But what does that have to do with my struggle with anger? 
or worry or depression or some other thing. Well, Paul says that it changes everything. So, so let's talk about the victory of Christ's people. And we have to begin here with the fact that in eternity, we will be glorified. So, so look again at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And then verse 8 basically says the same thing. It says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So, so both of those verses say that our union with Christ's death guarantees the future complete union of the believer with, with, with resurrection life. We will be changed. I love how 1 Corinthians 15 describes what, what God is going to do someday. It says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality, and then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And folks, that is our great hope. Someday I will be in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. And yet, sadly, what well, we're, I think, I mean, every Christian, I would assume, longs for that day. We, we can't wait to be made imperishable, incorruptible, all those things. But, but very often, we, we fail to see the connection between that day and, and what I am trying to accomplish today, what, what my goal is in, in my present struggle with sin. And in particular, we, we, we have to see. What is God's fundamental goal in saving you? It's to glorify you. It's to make you into the image of Jesus. And if that is God's ultimate goal in eternity, it ought to be my goal for today. And folks, holiness is the goal of the gospel so that we can fully glorify the Lord. And and, and folks, if holiness, if glorification is the climax of my salvation, then it absolutely must be my passion today. And I should earnestly desire to partake as much as I can today in the beauty of God and the holiness of God because that's going to be my glory for all of eternity. I mean, why, why, if that's going to be my glory for heaven... I think that I should turn around and live today contradictory to what God has called me to do, to the best thing that I will enjoy. It's absurd. And and so as a Christian, I must learn today to hate sin as, as the ultimately cheap imitation that it really is. And I must pursue God's all satisfying eternal holiness. Folks, eternity And my hope for eternity must shape the way I pursue life today. And then notice that that I can pursue this goal today because not only is this true for heaven, in the present, I am alive to God. Again, verse 8 says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Now, it's important to emphasize that that neither verse 8, or excuse me, verse 5, nor verse 8 is 
only intended to describe life and eternity. No, no, rather, the point is, is that someday I'm going to be glorified, and, and what God is going to ultimately do in heaven and in glory has broken into the present. So, so think of it sort of like dawn in the morning. Now, now, some of you never wake up early enough to see this, but trust me when I say that, that long before the sun appears over the horizon in its full glory, it begins to light up the sky. You, you feel the effects of the sun well before you ever see the sun. And of course, the same is true at dusk. That, that one, even once the sun has, has gone below the horizon, you begin to see, you, you can still see its glory. You can still see its light. And, and that's the point here. That, that, that yes, we are headed to glory. But, but that glory that we will enjoy in heaven, it has broken into the present. It changes our lives today. And so much so, that, that what does Paul say in verse 11? He says, consider yourselves... You could say right now to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I'm not yet fully glorified, and neither are you. We've got a long way to go. But I am dead to sin and alive to God. And similarly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So, so I'm not the same person I used to be. Now, now again, that doesn't mean that I always feel like a new creature or that I always look like a new creature, all right? And, and neither is it true for you. No, no, every Christian is still a sinner and we are all striving for godliness. And frankly, the, the more you strive for godliness, the more you begin to realize just how far you have to go. You know, you know, people who are pursuing holiness, really pursuing holiness, have no visions of personal grandeur. We feel the weight of their sin. And so the fact that you are very aware of your struggles does not mean you're doing something wrong. It actually means you're doing something right. So, so, so we have a long ways to go. But by God's grace, if you are in Christ, there has been a fundamental change in your relationship to sin. So, so, and, and you know this. You know that, that when God's word confronts your sin, you're not hardened, you're not numb to God's word. It, it hits your heart. It convicts you. And, and you want to fight sin. You want to pursue holiness. You fall on your face a lot, but, but that is your heart. And I think for, for as much as we can tend to focus on all that's wrong and discourage ourselves, I think pretty much any Christian, if you, if you really take the time to just step back and reflect, then you can see that God is changing you. And if you look back you know, 10, 15 years or however long you've been saved, you can see the hand of God. You can see His grace making you something different. So, so Christ is doing a marvelous work in every genuine believer. He is transforming us into His image so that for all of eternity, we can enjoy the presence of God and bring Him glory. It's awesome. So, so don't ever forget who you are in Christ. Your identity has forever and, and fully and wonderfully changed. 
Again, Galatians 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I used to think that that verse was describing some kind of commitment that I needed to make as a Christian. And that is not what that verse is saying. That verse is describing everyone who is in Christ. I have been crucified with him. And Christ, by his grace, is coming out of me in my day-to-day life. Christian, you are dead to sin. And you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So so those are two great truths. But but Paul's not yet done. He, He ends with a very important command, which is that you must consider who you are. So so he pulls all this together in verse 11 by saying, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, a fun but very important fact about this verse is that this is the very first imperative in the book of Romans. The very first command. So, So Paul has spent over five chapters laying a theological foundation. He has not told people to do one thing yet until he comes to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. And he commands us to take all of this theology that we've heard and to consider it. To consider it. And the verb that he uses here fits that sort of philosophy. Well, it's, it's the verb legizomai, and it's actually the same verb that he used in chapter 4 over and over to, to describe how God considers us or counts us righteous. And the, and the, the parallels are, are, are really great. So, so just like when God saves us, you know, God doesn't impulsively justify someone, right? No. We are placed in Christ. And when we're placed in Christ, we're, we're in His righteousness, and God thoughtfully looks at us in Christ, and based on that, he, he counts us, He considers us righteous. And, and similarly, He's commanding us here to consider who you are in Christ. Now, I want to emphasize that He's not simply commanding us to know in our heads who we are in Christ, so that you could answer it on a test. True or false? You know, you're as dead to sin and alive to God. True. No. It's much more than that. We must take what we know from these previous verses and, and we must contemplate its significance for life. We must really believe that we are dead to sin and alive to God to the extent that it transforms how we see ourselves, how we see our sin struggles, how we uh, approach life, our goal of life. I mean, folks, I mean, these truths are intended to be revolutionary. And it's significant, I think, that that Paul here uses uh, the present imperative, and and the the imperative here, the present tense indicates that this has to be an ongoing consideration. So so you can sit there in your seat right now and obey this command. All right, I'm going to consider that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But you know what Satan's going to do tomorrow? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So the moment you wake up tomorrow and the moment you fail for the first time, he is going to try and convince you 
that holiness is hopeless today. I'm a broken loser. Nothing's going to happen. And, and glory, he, he, wants to fa- he wants you to, to see the glory of heaven as a distant, almost dream. Not really a reality that shapes your life. And so you need to consider tomorrow. You know, daily. Sometimes hour by hour. Sometimes moment by moment. You need to consider that you are dead to sin and alive to God. This has to be a, a fundamental truth that shapes how you see all of life. And I want to emphasize that this is vital to your spiritual health. Because as I said in my introduction, how you see yourself spiritually dramatically shapes how you approach the Christian life. You have to know who you are if you're going to live like it. You know, for example, uh, I coached basketball for a number of years. When I was in Michigan, I coached uh, freshman and sophomore boys. And uh, so one year uh, on my team, uh, I had a boy on my team named Josh. And, and at the beginning of the season, Josh was probably about 5'10". And uh, he was a really quiet, really quiet, unassuming kid. And, and he was a decent basketball player. He had pretty good handle. He could handle the ball pretty well. And he had pretty good touch in his shot. And so, and so we mostly played him as a wing or as a forward. And, um, and, and he did okay out there. But, but probably about you know, three months into the season, we're practicing one day, and I'm watching the boys, and, and, and it just hit me that Josh had suddenly become the tallest boy on the team. He wasn't 5'10 anymore. He was like 6'3". And, and so Josh was not the same basketball player he had been. At least his potential was, was totally different. And, and so... And so I had to change how I looked at Josh and how I coached Josh and where I put Josh on the court. And as well, if Josh was going to succeed, he had to realize he wasn't five foot ten anymore. If he was going to use his size the best, he had to understand that he didn't need to be scared of all the little five eight, you know, peons anymore. He could just shoot over them. You know, if he was going to dominate like he could, he, he, it wasn't good enough that he was 6'3". He had to understand that he was 6'3". Because it changes how you play. It changes how aggressive you are. It changes how you attack because you know that you can do something. And, and the same is true in the Christian life. And one of the most important keys to spiritual victory is believing that you can attain it. You have to stop believing that sin is this overwhelming enemy that that, that cannot be defeated, and you have to start acting like it is a defeated foe. And and that realization will change how you think. It will increase your motivation, and it will fundamentally alter the battle. So, Christian, you need to consider who you are in Christ. Christ. Yeah, and I, I can say that, that, that this realization, I mean, it transformed my spiritual life. I, I mentioned four weeks ago that, that Romans 6, I took a Romans class in college, and, and Romans 6 was the most revolutionary chapters for me in, in, in all of Scripture. Yeah, because, because going into college, I had always seen, uh, I, I had always seen obedience as, as something that was overwhelmingly difficult. You know, because obedience 
was just simply about me gritting my teeth and doing the best I could. And so if I succeeded, I became proud because look what I did for Jesus. And if I failed, I despaired because, man, I blew it. But, but Romans 6 showed me that, that I'm not on my own. You know, it's not that, that God you know, gives me a ticket to heaven and then says, you know, go, go attack that, that spirituality thing, have fun, I'll see you in heaven. No. I mean, when I got saved, He changed me. And, and so I am now dead to sin and alive to God. And someday He will finish the process and I will be glorified. And, and folks, when, when I came to understand that, it, it changed how I saw God's commands. It changed how I saw God. It changed the pursuit of holiness. It changed my sin struggles. It changed my hope for change and my entire strategy for change. Because it's not just about me. It's about Christ. And so I run to Him and lean on Him. So Christian, I want to urge you to consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And then let that perspective drive your battle. Now, now, we'll talk a lot more about that, Lord willing, next week in verses 12 through 14, because those verses are really going to apply this. But, but for now, I mean, it all begins with, with understanding who you are in Christ and battling accordingly. And then I just urge you as well to, to keep this perspective as you minister to other people. You know, sometimes a Christian parent's and, and Christian disciple-makers are, are quick to despair over every struggle we see in those we're trying to serve. You know, yeah, and, and, and you should want change, right? We, we should never be numb towards the sins of those that we love and those that we're trying to help. But don't forget that change is a process. And if that person is in Christ and you can see the evidence of God's Spirit at work in someone's life, that God will change them. Now, that change is not automatic, but the Bible does teach that it is inevitable. God will work in His people. So, so, so don't just guilt people into obedience. Right? You know, sometimes we, we, you know, Sometimes we, we just manipulate and hound, and that's how we get change. You know, don't just guilt them into obedience. Help people see who they are in Christ. Help them understand you know, holiness and the pursuit of Christ-likeness from the perspective of the gospel. And show them how to change. And really work to be a gospel-centered disciple-maker. And then finally, and maybe there's someone here who has never truly received Christ as your Savior. Now, now it might be that, that you've played the game for a long time. You said some words when you were a kid because you didn't want to go to hell, because it made mom happy. But the reality is, is that, that you've never really contemplated the idea of receiving Christ as your Savior. And I would just urge you to see today that Jesus is 
a loving Savior and a wonderful Lord. And, and, so, and so see Him for who He is. And then repent of your sins and receive Christ. Come to Him in faith and enter a relationship with Him. He will change your life. And yeah, it might be scary to think about what that change might hold. But it is a good change. Because Christ is a good Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Christ and for the relationship that we can have with Him. And God, I pray that if any are here who have never received Christ that today they would do so and help us who know Him to live every day considering that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. No, oh, Father, I pray that this week uh, that You would strengthen us to do battle with sin. I pray that You'd give us faith to see the hope of eternity. God, I pray that we would encourage each other in these truths rely on these truths, and that we would pursue Christ with hope, with confidence, with strength, with determination, all because of your grace at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.